Wow, that was incredible. I kind of feel like um, that's enough, actually. I don't need to preach. <laughs> Alex, that testimony was really powerful. Um, and I hope really encourages a lot of people here. It encourages me because it's very much about what I'm going to speak to you about this morning. So thank you so much for being um, brave enough and bold enough to share that. Um, it's a really important part of our church life, isn't it? To share our stories and our testimonies, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to learn from one another. So um, yeah, thank you, Alex. That's, that's really special. Um, so this morning, Chris and I are going to um, talk about joy. Um, so I discovered in my research that the good news is... Um, am I pressing the down arrow? <coughs> Ta-da! Uh, the good news is you can buy joy. So it might be a really short sermon. Um, if you're on a budget, um, you can buy joy for just under a pound. It comes kinder, supply joy in some gooey mass with a biscuit thing in it. Um, if you want to wear joy, there's a joy clothing line. Clothe yourself in joy. Um, if you've got £75, Christian Dior can sell you a perfume so you can smell like joy. Um, so, yeah, so there we go. That's how you can get joy. Um, if, you've got, if you've got a budget of up to £75. Um, obviously, this is not the kind of joy that we're going to be talking about this morning. This is short-lived joy. Um, and it will, it does, these things can bring joy, but it's short-lived and it's not the kind of deep joy that we're um, going to be talking about today. Um, just a bit, of a, a bit of an honesty moment here. I've got to be honest, when Chris said to me, we're down on the preaching motor and we're preaching on joy, my heart sank a little bit. <laughs> and I panicked. The reason being... Um, for those, well, anybody who can just see me now in the room, I don't think that I embody joy particularly. Um, I have, my resting face is actually quite miserable looking. I, I, I get asked a lot, are you okay, Nick? And there is, I don't know if he's in the room, there is one person in the room, I won't name him, who regularly says, cheer up, Nick, it may never happen. Um, he's taken a bit of a beaten a couple of times for saying that. It's just my face. It's, I've said to Chris, it's nothing a bit of Botox probably wouldn't fix, but it's just, it's just how I look. I also, on the inside though, have to confess to having a bit of a negative mindset. I am a bit of a glass half empty person. I'm married to a, um, a growth mindset person whose glass is half full, so he really helps to balance me out. But it is something that I have to be very aware of. I can very quickly go to the negative and not embrace the joy. So whilst I kind of thought, wow, whether I'm the worst person to be doing this, God's really spoken to me in preparing for today. So I hope in what he's spoken to me about, I can translate that and, and encourage you. Um, I think we all want to have a life full of joy, don't we? We want to be great at responding to times of hardship too. Um, but I think that can be a real struggle, if we're honest, in those times. Um, we can often be left feeling worse if we haven't been able to overcome pain or suffering or disappointment with uh, a joyful response. Um, and I think, certainly for me, and I have known others too, it can lead to you feeling that joy can be really elusive for some of us. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not meant to have joy in my life. Um, maybe it's something I just need to try really, really hard at. If I try much harder, I'll be more joyful. I think we can end up 
feeling that joy is just for happier people. Uh, maybe it's not for us. Um, so in preparing for this today, I, think, I feel that God put three things on my heart to share with you all. Um, so the first thing is the key to unlocking joy. Um, in his book, Honesty Over Silence, this one here, um, Patrick Regan retells the story of Elijah. And I just encourage you, as a side note, if you, if you don't know the story of Elijah, go and, go and look it up and read it through. It's, it, it's, it's really encouraging. It's really interesting. He had quite a ride, Elijah. Um, and um, Patrick says this. Um, After the epic showdown at Karma, where he called down the fire of God. I mean, how amazing is that? Do we call down the fire of God? I'd love to call down the fire of God. There was a contract placed on Elijah's life by the queen. He fled and went into hiding, exhausted, depressed, anxious, and isolated. We read in 1 Kings 19.4 that he had reached breaking point. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Elijah's really at a low point here. He's, he's been through a lot. It was quite some experience. And he's just hit a brick wall to the point that he's ready for God just to take his life. He was crushed by disappointment. Um, but God didn't tell him to cheer up. He didn't say, man up, Elijah. Move on, get on with it. He didn't berate him for losing faith. He didn't get him to recall past miracles and tell him to find inspiration there. As a side note, there's a place for that. I'm not going into it today. I'm not saying that this isn't what we should do, but he didn't tell him better days were ahead, so he just needed to keep going. Instead, God sent him an angel, and this angel was sent to care for Elijah in that moment. The angel provided him with food to build his strength and rest for the journey. And then after he'd eaten and he'd rested, the angel woke him and made him eat again and then made him rest again. Elijah didn't need a pep talk. Elijah needed compassion. And I think God really demonstrates here that it's okay to acknowledge feelings of despair, hopelessness, distress. Um, I look around this room. I know that many, many people will have experienced many, maybe all of those emotions at some point or another. Um, God, I think, in this story with Elijah is really modelling empathy and compassion and understanding for where Elijah's at. Um, Elijah was strengthened by that rest and the food. He was, then, he was able then to press on with his journey, um, teaching us that by addressing these emotions, meeting that need might actually be the key to unlocking maybe a more positive mindset, more strength, maybe a breakthrough of joy. So in the same way, when we or others are suffering, when we're in pain, when we're in distress, we shouldn't feel pressured into moving quickly on, trying to suppress feelings, mask them with a false positivity. Man up, press on, it'll be okay. Instead, let's meet one another in that place, as God demonstrated with love and with compassion. And in time, joy can and will break through. So the next thing that God put on my heart as I was preparing for this, and it was a a thread as I was reading, was that joy is linked to community, um, which is where I think it it links quite nicely into um, our Healthy Church series. Um, It seems that as well as being linked, maybe our joy is even dependent on one another. 
So it shouldn't surprise us because we're created to be in relationship. We're created in the image of God. God is relational. He created us for relationship. Um, and we were created to, to love and to serve one another. Chris is going to take us through... Um, I've been calling it Filipinos all week. I've really struggled with it. Chris is going to take us through Philippians because there isn't a book called Filipinos in the Bible, in case you didn't know, in a moment. Um, But when I was reading through the book in preparation, I noticed that every reference that Paul makes to joy is in the context of somebody else's actions, which is where I came up with this link that actually joy seems to be dependent on other people as well in our community. So we just have a look through these, lots of words. There are five references. So Paul tells us, I prayed with joy for your partnership, that community, he's working with people, partnership in the gospel. Second reference was that I will remain with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Again, that's about him um, finding that joy um, in that community with those people working alongside the Philippians. And then his joy is dependent on them. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. And then, here we go again, uh, welcome him. He's actually talking about Epaphroditus. Did it? Do you like that? Epaphroditus, I'll say it again. Um, in the Lord with great joy. I practice that word a lot. Um, so again, there's that link, isn't there? That, that joy, welcome him with joy. We welcome we welcome. It needs us to be involved. It needs an action for us to be involved in that, to achieve that. And then the last one, therefore, my brothers and sisters, I love this one, of whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my joy and crown. Are we each other's joy and crown? Am I your joy and crown? Are you my joy and crown? I thought that was a lovely description that Paul used. And this led me on to my, my last point. Sorry. Um, and this is the one that, that um, throughout reading around this subject has really kept coming up again and again for me about the idea of joy and pain coexisting. Um, I'm sure we've all experienced times where we felt overwhelmed with joy, where things maybe are going really well or prospering in different ways or just feel good Maybe anxiety isn't something that we're struggling with or battling with. And how great it feels, how light the burden is when we're experiencing joy. But what about when we are overwhelmed with pain? What about suffering, grief, loss, despair? How does that feel? My experience is that it's both exhausting, physically draining... And it can actually feel really, really dark. It can be a really dark place. It can very much seem that it is the extreme of joy. So joy over here, pain, suffering, grief, loss over here. They're extremes. Is it one or the other? I've been reading a book um, called The Book of Joy that was... it's. Um, written by a guy who actually interviewed the Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. Don't panic. I'm not going to preach um, Buddhist um, practice or anything. But these two guys have both got a wealth of experience in um, 
in suffering and in pain and in exile, they've got some really interesting things to say about joy in the midst of their experiences. And the Archbishop says this, he says, discovering joy does not save us from inevitable hardship and heartbreak. Yet, as we discover more joy, we can face suffering in a way that ennobles... I had to look that word up. I didn't know that word. Ennobles means to have greater character. In a way that ennobles rather than embitters. And I really like this last bit. We have hardship without becoming hard. We have heartbreak without being broken. Um, Pain and suffering can be overwhelming, but there is hope. Joy can puncture through. Um, Even in the darkest of times, joy can transform despair into hope and pain into peace. Um, And I just want to share a story with you um, of, I lost, many of you know, I lost my mum 18, just over 18 years ago. She died very suddenly. um, And it happened in the middle of the night. I just feel like all kind of disasters seem to happen in the middle of the night, don't they? And um, we got a call at half past 11 from my dad to say, come quick, mum's been rushed to hospital. We were there just before midnight and she'd gone. It was, it was that quick. Um, we called my sister who was living in Birmingham and we said, you need to come now, mum's really, really poorly. Um, and she set off and then 10 minutes, 20 minutes later, we were calling her to say, Nat, we've lost her. So her and her husband still made that three-hour journey at that point down to, we were living in Dorset at the time and they were coming from Birmingham. Um, They had a five-month-old son. Uh, There are six grandchildren on that side of the family. And Alfie was the first and only child at the time. Um, So he was the only grandchild my mum had met. So they made that three-hour journey down to our house. And I remember, I think Chris had gone to bed. I think Chris had been propping us up for the last four hours. And he'd gone off to bed, and we opened the front door, and there was myself and my dad in the hallway. And my sister and her husband came in with Alfie in his car seat, popped him down, and we just fell into each other's arms and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And it's a very vivid memory for me um, of that moment. The, the weight of the loss, I think the shock as well on reflection, the weight of the loss and the grief was utterly overwhelming. I remember saying at the time when people say that there's a physical pain with grief, I literally remember saying, I feel like somebody has shot a cannon through my stomach. I literally just feel like there's this hole. Utterly overwhelming. And none of us were in a position to make any any of the others feel better. We were sharing that grief. Um, But then something happened in that moment of real, real darkness. Alfie at five months was wide awake in his car seat watching this spectacle with interest with his big blue eyes. And he broke wind. (laughs) And as he broke wind, he made himself giggle, as most five-month-olds do. And we turned from that moment of being consumed with our grief to look at this little face staring up at us, giggling. And in that moment, Joy punctured through that grief. And it just gave us the relief that we needed. It was momentary, and over the next hours and days and weeks, we returned to that place of real heavy grief 
because that was a cycle we had to go through. It's a cycle all of us have to go through at some point. But on reflection years later and doing this preach this morning, I realise now that that was a God-given gift in that moment because God knew that that wasn't sustainable. You can't remain in that place. It's, I, it would literally kill you. You can't stay in that place. And God knew that he could puncture that grief with a moment of joy. And as time went on, those moments were punctured more and more with grief. And actually, the grief begins to diminish and the joy begins to grow. And that gave us real hope. It's given me real hope since then. So my question to you this morning, um, before I say that, I just want to encourage you, having taken you down that quite low place, Chris is going to bring some scriptures in a minute. They're going to give us real hope. <laughs> um, and focus on how we, how we access that joy, where that joy comes from, what, what real joy is. Um, but my question is, how has God punctured your pain with joy? Because I think sometimes it's good to look back at where that's happened, and it can help us to seek it when we're in that position again. Has it been through nature, through an amazing sunset sky, Maybe your head's been down, and as the sun sets and you look up, you know when you get these amazing skies here where they're like pinks and purples and shadows and silhouettes, and they're just mind-blowing, and all of a sudden you're not looking down here, but you're going, wow, look what God did. That's incredible. That's where God punctures through and brings you joy. Has it been through the compassion of a friend who maybe bought you a meal when you were sick or someone calling you to see how you were feeling when you were low? Maybe it was in some amazing provision when finances were tough. Or not even the provision, but the reminder in his word of God's faithfulness, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. Maybe it was coming to God in worship and being in his presence. I felt real joy this morning just singing that last song. That was, oh, just... And Anna, listening to you on the cello as well, just, that's, that's a moment of joy for me. I felt joy this morning, knowing that I'm loved, that I'm forgiven. And that my salvation was bought at a price. That gave me joy this morning. So I would suggest that at times, both states of emotion, the joy and the pain and the suffering, actually run parallel together. I don't believe we have to be in one state or another. If you imagine train track rails running parallel and joy being on one side and pain and suffering being on the other. I think this analogy draws a picture of the relationship between suffering and joy. But the good news is we know that this struggle won't last forever. When you look at the picture of the train tracks, you notice that as they disappear into the distance, they become a single track. You have the promise of an eternity where there will be no more suffering, no more pain. There will only be joy, a single track of joy. What a promise, what a hope. Alex has shared some of her story with us this morning. That's a glimpse of what we have for eternity. Alex has that in this life now. She shared that with us to give us encouragement and hope. But that's just a, a smattering of what we'll have in eternity. So I'm going to hand over to Chris now, who's going to help us unpick this a little bit more. Oh, 
ya. Thanks, Nick. That was fantastic. I've just realised my glass is half full, so I'm just going to top it up. <laughs> See what I did there? We'll try not to kick that over onto the laptop. Hopefully that should be fine. So, that was, for me, it's been really encouraging this week working with Nicola to prepare this because we came from different perspectives, different angles. Nicola prepared what she felt God was saying to her. I prepared what I felt God was saying to us. Joseph brought what he brought last week. And all three seemed to be saying very similar things. It was really, it's been a really encouraging week um, for me, just thinking through how God does speak to us clearly. He doesn't try and confuse, he doesn't try and overcomplicate. So thank you for, for, um, for preparing and sharing so clearly, so well, um, and in such an encouraging way. I think hopefully we're all a little bit more encouraged by what we've just heard. I certainly am. So... What is joy? We've heard some stories about it. We kind of know it when we see it, don't we? Um, But I wanted to just put a definition around what joy actually is. Um, And I've looked around for a few definitions, and there are loads. So I made one up myself. (laughs) Um, The definition that I've come up with for joy is that it's a subconscious, positive, emotional response to a situation. Okay? It's a subconscious, positive, emotional response to a situation. Or, if we use the word rejoice, it means to feel or show great joy or delight. So, rejoicing is the act of being joyful. Um, Just so that you don't think I'm making it all up and there is some sound basis for what I'm talking about, John Piper has also come up with a good definition of Christian joy, which is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Joy is a positive, emotional response. It's a feeling. It's something we sense, something we experience. And it's a feeling that we get in response to something. It's caused by or it's triggered by something or someone outside of ourselves. So, because of that, it's not entirely under our control. The thing that triggers it isn't always under our control, which is why I say it's subconscious. It's something that happens to us rather than we rather than it being something we can choose to do or to be. So it's a subconscious, positive, emotional response. So, how can we respond to the command in Scripture in Philippians 4.4, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. How can we do that? when it's not entirely in our control? How can we do that when it's a response 
to a situation that's not always good. It's not always, the situation we're in is not always one that produces a positive response in us. I think Nicola gave some great examples of situations like that. In fact, I would almost go as far as to say that acting joyfully when we are not joyful is a sign of hypocrisy. It's a sign that we're pretending to be happy for the sake of how others see us, rather than allowing them to see us for how we really are. So the command to be joyful is actually quite a challenging one for us, because we can't always control the feelings that are inside of us. We can't always control um, what feelings we have. But remember our definition. It's a subconscious positive emotional response to a situation. We do have control over how we view our situation. That is something that we can choose to view in a different way either as the world sees it or as God sees it. And when we start to think about our situation through God's eyes, through the filter that God gives us, then we can start to respond to that subconsciously in a positive way which brings great joy. In other words, choosing to be joyful or the choice to rejoice means choosing to see ourselves as God sees us. Accepted, forgiven, one with the Father, and not as we often see ourselves as suffering, weak, sinful failures who don't deserve to be happy. It's a choice to see ourselves as God sees us. So I just want to take the thought forward from there and think about a couple of other passages in scripture that talk about joy just very briefly so we'll look in if you've got your Bibles um, it's on the screen have a look in James chapter 1 and then we're going to pick up Hebrews 12 as well I'm just going to have a look at those two very briefly so James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So James is showing us here that we can consider it pure joy when we are under trial. In other words, we can look at our situation that appears to be bad and see it as being good. Consider it pure joy. How? It's because of what it's producing in us. When we look at that situation through God's eyes, what we see is that the trial is producing something in us. And it's producing something in us that is good for eternity. Maybe not now, may hurt now, but in eternity, it's a good thing. Okay? So that's what James says. Just as very quickly, let's have a look at the one in Hebrews 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Again, we've got a couple of verses here that talk about trials and pain and suffering, but in both cases, they talk about what that trial and pain and suffering 
is producing in us. I'm just going to very briefly step through and just show you a little comparison between the two. So the first part of the James passage, consider it pure joy. It's a command, as I've said before, to see our situation through God's eyes, to see our situation as being good, a situation that produces a positive feeling in us. Consider it pure joy. When? When we face trials. He's being realistic. James knows that sometimes life throws up tough situations but we're to consider it pure joy when we face them. Why? Because those hard times are being used to produce something good in us. The testing produces in us perseverance, the ability to press on. Something that is worth feeling positive about. So let's have a look at Hebrews. Well, Hebrews uses an interesting word because it talks about discipline. It talks about discipline being not pleasant. Nobody likes being disciplined or corrected, but a good parent knows that short-term pain for a child produces long-term goodness in them. We know that that's how it works. And what's produced? A harvest of righteousness and peace. Hebrews, the, the verse in Hebrews talks about joy but uses the word discipline. And this is because it's talking about the way that our loving Heavenly Father is training us to become more like him, to become the people that he has created us to be. And if anything should produce a positive, subconscious, emotional feeling of happiness in us, it is the fact that a loving Heavenly Father is creating us to be more like him. Amen? What more is there that could give us joy? in life, and for eternity. So this is how we can see trials and suffering as joy, because they come from our, lov our loving Heavenly Father. And it is in this light that we can start reading other verses in the Bible, like the well-known verse in Romans 8, 28. It's on the screen. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. In all things. In the things that are good and the things that are bad. The things that hurt and the things that are fun. In the loss and in the celebration. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. How much more do we need to be joyful about? If we focus on the good that he is doing, that will produce a positive emotional response in us. If we focus on the hardship, the suffering, the loss, the pain, it's going to produce a negative emotional response in us. We can choose where we are putting our focus because we know that God is working in all those things. It's sometimes really easy to try and talk about Scripture and it's sometimes, I personally find... I love reading scripture and letting scripture speak for itself. So I'm going to finish by reading a couple of scriptures which are slightly longer. They'll come up on the screen. And having talked about our choice to focus on how 
uh, focus on our life, our situation, the way God sees it. I want you to hear these scriptures in that light now as I read them. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is temporary uh, is... Uh, I've lost a bit there, haven't I? What is seen is temporary, thank you. But what is unseen is eternal. Focus on the eternal. Focus on the glory that outweighs all our light and momentary troubles. And another one, slightly longer one, this one. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are receiving the end result of your faith. Through the trial, through the pain, through the suffering, you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We are looking forward to an eternal reality that we are only experiencing now in part. But through the Holy Spirit, we have a guarantee in us that it can never be stolen. This glorious eternity that we know we are starting to live in. Salvation is not just dealing with our past sinfulness, although it does. But it's taking hold of a promise of a glorious future. A glorious inheritance forever with our loving Heavenly Father, without sin or sickness or suffering or death. One track, one rail, forever. We no longer live in darkness, but we have seen a great light. The light of the world, Jesus, and through him, we no longer need to fear anything the enemy tries to throw at us. Why? Because the enemy's been defeated. And we're on the winning side, amen? So, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. 
And let us start to learn to see our situation as he sees it in us. In the light of our glorious, eternal salvation. And as we do, we will start to see our own subconscious, emotional response to that situation becoming more positive. We will start to become joyful. And all the world will look at us and they will see a people who are filled with joy, who are able to, as we looked at earlier, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Amen? What I want to do just to finish, we've got about five minutes left. And as I said, sometimes um, it's good to let Scripture speak. Sometimes it's good to allow... um, allow, uh, Oh, hold on. Uh, Sometimes it's good to allow the Bible to speak for itself. I don't want to add any words. I don't want to try and say anything clever, but I want to allow Scripture to speak. And we very rarely read whole books of Scripture. But these verses, the verse I've just read, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, comes at the end of a book which would have been read to the local church in Philippi. It was a letter. And someone would have stood up one Sunday morning or whatever day it would have been and would have read the whole letter. And that letter was intended to do what we've been doing this morning, to bring joy. Okay, so we're going now to read through the whole of the book of Philippians. It's not going to come up on the screen. I'm just going to read it, but I want you to listen to it as you would have done had you been in Philippi on that morning when the letter was opened and read out. And bearing in mind the positive response that you will get by focusing on what Jesus wants you to focus on, listen to the whole passage. So I'll just read it out. So it's from Paul and Timothy, who are servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from our God, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ 
out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Just jump to verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain, and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Sounds different when you've got the focus on Jesus, doesn't it? Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, in any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, eyes down, but to the interests, but each of you to the interests of others as God would want you to do. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Therefore, dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation then you will shine among them like stars in the sky 
and you will hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. The pain was worth it. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Jump on to chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage because I can gain Christ and I can be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and his participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on, move on, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See why it was so encouraging when I heard what Joseph brought last week. Forgetting what's behind. Don't look at the Egyptians. Press on towards the goal. Move on. All of us then who are mature, going, carrying on from verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Here it comes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evidence to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, 
whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Amen.